This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm a physician and clinical scientist in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada, where I'm a professor of medicine. Today I'm joined by Professor Ricardo Osorio, who's the senior author of today's article for discussion, Obstructive Sleep Apnea Severity Affects Amyloid Burden in Cognitively Normal Elderly, a longitudinal study. Professor Osorio is in the Department of Psychiatry in the Center for Brain Health at the New York University Langone Medical Center. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Osorio. Thank you for inviting me, John. So before we discuss your paper, I'd like to ask a couple of questions to help set its context. Um, Can you summarize the animal and clinical studies which have indicated an association between obstructive sleep apnea and Alzheimer's disease? So the relationship between uh, sleep and Alzheimer's was has been known for many years. In fact, the first description of uh, the first patient with Alzheimer's uh, disease uh, already had st- strong sleep disturbances. Her name was Auguste Dieter, and she had very disturbed sleep. And we know from uh, clinical practice that Alzheimer's patients have uh, abnormal sleep and increased prevalence of sleep apnea. What is new, uh, and this has emerged in the last 10 years, is that not only Alzheimer's disease disrupts sleep, but that sleep disruption can be a risk factor for uh, developing Alzheimer's later, uh, later on. So it's, uh, the new um, um, angle is that sleep could be a, a potential uh, prevention. Um, improving sleep could be a, a potential prevention strategy for Alzheimer's. So what are the proposed pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease in patients with obstructive sleep apnea? So the, well, the way all this was linked was a study that was done in mice in which they found that the, one of the Alzheimer's disease is produced by the deposition of two proteins in the brain. One of them is amyloid beta, and the other one is uh, hyperphosphorylated tau. And there was a study in mice that showed that amyloid beta had a circadian rhythm and that uh, the levels of amyloid beta in the brain will decrease during uh, sleep. And this was later uh, proved to be the case too in humans. And uh, after this study, there was a lot of interest and a bunch of epi studies uh, showed that there was a relationship between um, sleep disruption and later development of uh, dementia. And... um, we think that the link between stratus sleep apnea and Alzheimer's disease could be through sleep fragmentation. So um, sleep has this effect on A-beta in which it decreases its level. If sleep is fragmented by uh, sleep apnea, uh, the levels of A-beta would not be able to go down and they will stay high. And that eventually would lead to amyloid beta deposition and, uh, um, and further, further on to uh, development of dementia. Now, your study's objective was to determine whether there's an association between severity of obstructive sleep apnea 
and longitudinal increase in amyloid in cognitively normal elderly. Can you take us through your study design? So we enrolled from, uh, we are based in New York and uh, the uh, we work in what is called an Alzheimer's disease center. So these centers are um, funded by the NIH and they're all through the country. And uh, so this is just one of them. And we have uh, a cohort of uh, healthy volunteers that they are enrolled in studies on aging and AD biomarkers. So what we did was just um, we added objective measurements of sleep to this cohort that was being followed uh, over time. Uh, can you describe the cohort in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so it's a... Uh, well, uh, working from New York has problems. One of them is that the elderly that we have here are very healthy. Um, so this is a cohort of 67-year-olds, uh, cognitively normal, healthy elderly, and we can call them... Uh, successful agers because they most of them work and they are very highly educated and they exercise and they live uh, very active lives and um, they are um, volunteering for these studies because they have either relatives with Alzheimer's or they just want to know uh, how they're doing on their memory they uh, I think one of the important things about the studies that we did not recruit them based on any sleep complaint so if anything some of them had uh, uh, memory complaints or they were worried about their memory but they didn't think sleep was an issue um, and this is very different from other studies that have actually recruited from uh, sleep clinics which uh, traditionally have more uh, sleep apnea uh, patients more the uh, classical uh, male that is obese and snores and etc. Can you describe how obstructive sleep apnea was diagnosed and which sleep variables were used in your analysis? So we diagnose sleep apnea using uh, home monitory uh, uh, devices. Uh, we've been doing this study for um, uh, five years, and uh, we've used two devices, one the RS Unicorder and the Embleta Gold. This is basically uh, home uh, polygraphy with uh, measurements of uh, airflow, um, um, effort bells, and oximetry. And the variables that we uh, were interested in were the apnea-hypopnea index, and we measured the apnea-hypopnea index by uh, 4% saturations, so an AHI 4%, and we also used the, um, the current uh, AESM criteria, the AHI 3% or arousals. Now, can you explain the significance of cerebral amyloid, its relationship to cognition, and how it's assessed from CSF fluid and PET scans? Yeah, so I think the revolution in Alzheimer's uh, research in the last uh, 10 years, well, I would say more than that, like 20 years, is that we can measure, so these two lesions that I mentioned before, amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, we can measure them using biomarkers. And um, the first biomarker that was developed was the spinal fluid. We can measure amyloid um, beta using ELISA. We can also measure phosphorylated tau. So the one way to measure it is through doing a lumbar puncture and looking at the spinal fluid. And more recently, uh, they've, uh, we've developed uh, ways to measure both amyloid plaques and tau using PET imaging. The advantage of uh, PET imaging is that you can actually see the lesions in vivo in the brain. The problem of CSF is that you can 
measure these analytes, but uh, you don't you don't have the brain measurement. You don't you're not seeing the actual deposition in the brain. Well, this is something you can do with the PET scans. The other uh, problem is that uh, patients, well, participants don't like uh, doing lumbar punctures that much. So it's a little challenging to uh, convince people that to do uh, one or two lumbar punctures. But you know, some people still do it. And the uh, yeah, so the importance about um, amyloid is that the way um, we we understand the disease now is that people start to develop amyloid plaques years before developing symptoms. So we have this understanding now that there is a long preclinical period of up to 10 to 15 years in which uh, people will have no symptoms, so no memory complaints, no uh, memory decline, but they will start to show in these biomarkers uh, increase in amyloid burden and in tau. So theoretically, we can uh, diagnose who will develop uh, the disease uh, later in life. And technically, once we have treatments that are effective, uh, it would be much better to treat people when they have no symptoms than when they are further in the disease process and they really have dementia. Now, what were the primary findings of your study? So the primary findings, we tested uh, sleep apnea at baseline, and we had uh, markers of uh, amyloid beta in both uh, spinal fluid and in PET. And we had measurements of uh, CSF and PET uh, at two time points. And uh, what we saw, we did not see any relation between um, OSA severity and markers of CSF or PET amyloid at cross-section. But when we followed this uh, group of healthy elderly uh, over time, we saw that um, they developed uh, amyloid burden. So their, their markers of amyloid burden increased over time. So in other words, the more severe the sleep apnea, the higher the increase in amyloid burden uh, longitudinally. Was there any relationship between the change in brain amyloid burden and change in cognition over your two-year follow-up? No, we didn't find any. And this is in part related to what I mentioned before. Um, we are looking at a population that it's uh, completely normal, they're healthy, and uh, they're not Two years is not enough for them to, to develop any symptoms. So um, none of these subjects declined to mild cognitive impairment or dementia over the two-year follow-up. All of them stayed stable uh, cognitively, and, uh, and, and none of them uh, manifested any memory changes. But they did, we did find this change in this uh, amyloid marker that I described before. What do you think the major strengths and limitations are of your findings? I think the most relevant uh, finding is that uh, this is a sample from the community. So this is a healthy elderly cohort. And we found that the prevalence of uh, mild uh, sleep apnea was high, was like in their 30s. 20% uh, had severe sleep apnea. Um, very few were symptomatic, and in fact, most of the people uh, that we told them that they had uh, sleep apnea did not believe us. So we, we did find a very high 
prevalence of uh, sleep apnea that was underdiagnosed and in most cases asymptomatic and um, and then the uh, fact that it's associated with uh, amyloid deposition in the preclinical stage is also relevant in the sense that um, they did not show any cognitive symptoms. So we're both we're seeing the effects of uh, sleep disturbance that is not giving any um, sleep complaints, and we're seeing the effects in the brain in a stage in which it's not giving any um, uh, memory problems. So it's, it's, it's relevant for the purpose of, of prevention, but also in terms of um, diagnosis. It would be, it would, this would not be, this would be something that would be missed in a, in a clinical practice. The limitation is, I think, related to this. Uh, we still need to show that this is relevant clinically. Uh, ideally, we should continue to follow this cohort over time and see if those that have more amyloid burden uh, will eventually decline to MCI and, and dementia. And uh, ideally, uh, uh, we should also see if actually treating um, sleep apnea has any effects on the amyloid burden and they actually um, treating it uh, decreases um, this deposition. Now, treatment wasn't part of your study, but, but are you aware of any data to indicate that CPAP may delay the increase in amyloid burden or progression to cognitive impairment in patients with sleep apnea? Yeah, so we published a study in neurology in 2015 in which we tried to address this question uh, indirectly. So we downloaded data that was publicly available in a cohort that is called ADNI. This is a large uh, cohort uh, from the US um, in which you can download the um, neuroimaging data and the clinical data and CSF. And they have a large group of people with um, mild cognitive impairment and with AD. And where we looked and what we looked at was as the at the diagnosis of sleep apnea and the age of onset of both MCI and Alzheimer's. And what we saw is that the age of onset of MCI and AD in those people that had diagnosed sleep apnea and were treated with CPAP was uh, later diagnosis than those that were not under treatment. So in other words, uh, if you had sleep apnea and you were using CPAP, you would develop MCI and AVD an average of seven uh, years later than if you were not using CPAP. I don't know if this makes sense. <laughs> but in any way, uh, we found some evidence that uh, using CPAP might actually delay uh, the onset of, of mild cognitive impairment. And, but this was not a clinical trial. This is just evidence from an uh, epidemiological study. Do you have any final points you'd like to make about your findings? So, um, yeah, I would like to say that we tend to, to see sleep apnea in the elderly as less important than in middle age. And there is some evidence to support this. Uh, in the elderly, the association between sleep apnea and hypertension is less strong. Uh, they less commonly complain of sleepiness. We see less coronary heart disease. So in other words, we see a less aggressive phenotype. And uh, we tend to ask less about sleep apnea in the elderly and 
and also we, we tend to treat it less aggressively. And this study is pointing to the possibility that sleep apnea might not be as bad to the cardiovascular system but as we see in middle age, but might be actually increasing the risk of developing Alzheimer's, which is uh, as relevant or even more in this uh, age group. So um, I believe we should try to double down on this association and try to understand it better. And uh, if we're able to prove uh, that it does increase the risk of developing Alzheimer's, we should be more aggressive in trying to diagnose it and treating it with CPAP or with any other um, sleep um, um, therapy. Many thanks for doing this podcast, Professor Osario. Uh, to the listener, to read the articles discussed in this pod- podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening and have a great day.